Hello from elsewhere, I'm Casey. And I'm Valerie. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the theme of fatherhood in the works of Steven Spielberg. Greetings. Hello and there. And hello and hi. And hello Valerie, there. today we're talking about fathers. And I'm wondering, um, even before we get to the all-important question, so close your eyes, imagine your dad sitting on a couch and he's laughing like uncontrollably. What movie is he watching? <laughs> My dad's watching RV. 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 I don't think I ever heard him laugh so hard. The Robin Williams, Robin and they're Williams. on a camping trip in an RV, which my dad can relate to because he owns an RV. And we took a lot of RV trips growing up, and there was always comedic Calamity. You know, mishaps that ensued. Although that movie takes it to the extreme, but my dad laughs so hard at that movie. But was there a bucket of turtles on the RV in that movie? <laughs> in the movie? Or, no, but in real life, yes. yes. <laughs> should we tell that story? We've never told the bucket of turtles story. <laughs> Or should we save it for another time? Another time. Okay. We'll tease it. Maybe, yeah. Someone, if if it piques your interest, let us know. We'll talk about the bucket of turtles. Um, my dad is probably watching, I don't know. My my dad doesn't guffaw in the same way that your dad does. Yes. It's, it's a little more subdued, but probably like Dr. Strangelove. My dad laughs a lot at that. Uh, certain parts of like Pink Panther. I guess Peter Sellers. Anything mm. Peter Sellers, my dad's probably laughing at. Um, old movies. Okay, Casey. The all-important question. Who is the best dad in all fiction? It is Hector from Coco. He is the best dad. I'm trying to think. Is he... Not Ernesto he's... de la Cruz. Right, right. He's he's uh, Coco's mom. Or dad, I mean. I'm trying to remember which character he is. Yes. Okay. The little girl Coco. The little girl Coco. Her father. Yeah. Who has been trapped in the land of the dead for decades and decades every year trying to come back to visit his family and he can't do it he just has so much hardship and yet he keeps trying to do it because he wants to get to his coco and then you have all those flashback scenes that just they just tug at the heart vacuum to the tear ducts as they say (laughs) and uh as they say yeah people have said that i didn't make that weird metaphor up hector that's my answer he is a great dad he's persevering He's enduring. He's musical. He's funny when he, when, you know, but not always funny. You, you're not sick of him being funny. The only thing is he did leave his daughter to go on a big, you know, musical tour. Of course, he tries to come back to her. Yeah, but when he's tired the of it. best dads in fiction are not going to be perfect, I don't think. Well, it's because no father is perfect. Yeah, because it would be boring if that was the case. Also true. Which he, in that way, he's kind of like a Spielberg, Spielbergian father, um, very focused on his work kind of a thing, which we'll get into. But what's my, your answer? Are you ready for my yeah, answer? Go for it. Matthew Cuthbert of Anne of Green Gables. You keep bringing up Anne of Green Gables. I'm. It's a part of me, Casey. You just need to read all nine books already. <laughs> this has become a Star Wars slash Anne of Green Gables <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's all it is. That's it. Yep. So apparently it's time for me to reread the books because they keep coming back. But when you're talking about great fathers, Matthew never had children of his own. And then all of a sudden this 12-year-old little girl show, or 11-year-old little girl shows up at his house. And she was supposed to be a boy to help him on the farm. But he's not the one who wants to send her back. Marilla is. And so he, he's drawn to her right away. He lets her chat and imagine. And he just accepts her for who she is immediately. And uh, when she's crying because she really wants puffed sleeves for her dress. For the whatever it was, I think there was like a dance or something. He's the one who goes out and gets her puffed sleeves on a dress made in town, even though he's completely uncomfortable walking into the the clothing store, the to the shop where the lady makes the dresses. And uh, he just loves and admires her and teaches her in a really kind way. Marilla's definitely the the firm hand, and Matthew is the soft hearted and. Uh, he dies all too soon. But is Matthew Cuthbert a skinless skeleton that can play a guitar like nobody's business and is un poco loco? No. No. So the answer is Hector from Coco. So then. the answer is clearly a warm and loving person. Actually, he would be on the other side because he died too. So. Yeah. But if he didn't play guitar in this life, I don't, I don't know if he could learn it in the land of the dead. Maybe. Well. I don't know all the rules. Hector doesn't know how to be a farmer. So. Is Matthew Cuthbert, he's not played by Wilford Brimley, but in my head, 
he's played by Wilford Brimley. I don't so. know who Wilf- Wilford Brimley is. He has a mustache. <laughs> um, that doesn't narrow it down. He talks about diabetes. He's in all the diabetes commercials. <laughs> okay, I can picture him now. He lives down the road, actually. He does not. Not down the road here, <laughs> but where I grew up in my hometown, Wilfred Brimley. Supposedly, I never saw him, but everyone said he lived there, and I'm pretty sure he lived there. Um, all stuff and nonsense. I mean, I don't know how much he was there. He was busy filming commercials for diabetes and and uh, you're getting being, very off being topic. Matthew Cuthbert. No, in Anne of Green Gables, you are mistaken. I getting off topics fun, and in life I don't get off topic at all and so this is my chance to do that thing (laughs) you have nothing to add no so i asked instagram who the best dads in fiction are got some varied answers and i want to share them real quick got a lot of atticus finch he's a classic multiple atticus finch which i mean yeah he's the moral compass yeah of all literature so our friend cammy our friend Lindsay, my cousin rachel they all said atticus um stanley tucci is the dad in easy a it's been a long time since we've watched that one, yeah, but we liked it. Time. It's just been a while. Did somebody put Darth Vader? <laughs> yep, Darth Vader. Yep. Uh, Clark Griswold. I don't know if I agree with that one. That's a little iffy. Yeah, maybe. Arthur Weasley. I mean, come on. We got a couple Arthur Weasleys in there. Um, Joseph and Becca. And my friend Brady said, any Lord of the Rings fathers? <laughs> um, which, I mean, Denethor. No. Hmm. I mean, he was he was talking about Elrond. Good father. Elrond. Although he kind of lies. Elrond kind of lies, yeah. though. Theoden. Yeah. I think they're both doing what, you know, protect yeah. their people. But they're all definitely flawed fathers. Yes. Um, and you know, Aragorn's going to be an amazing dad, though. That's true. The best talking dad. Talking top dad. And Samwise. Samwise Ooh, is Samwise. a dad. Samwise. Yeah. yeah, he'd be a good dad, too. Got Mufasa. A couple Mufasa. of Cooper from Interstellar. Um I mean, he leaves his children to save them and the world. He but. is definitely a Spielberg father, which Interstellar was going to be a Spielberg movie. Really? So you can definitely see the Spielberg uh. influence there of of a dad um, a bit obsessive or um, putting work ahead of the children, ahead, or at least struggling with that balance of work. Right. So yeah, got a few, uh, quite a few good good answers. There's a lot of good dads in fiction. Right. Who else would you mention? Me. No, I just mean the people. Oh, the people. The people. Yeah. Who, who else are some great dads? Who are the other fantastic fictional fathers? Ray in Field of Dreams and his dad. I mean, mm. you can't talk about Father's Day without talking about Field of Dreams. <laughs> people will come, Ray. So a while ago, we started watching some Spielberg movies that I had never seen before. Uh, started with Jaws, because I was like, I've never seen Jaws, in case he had. And then we moved on, and I was like, okay, now I need to see E.T., because I'd never seen E.T. And uh, so then we watched E.T., and then we decided we were planning episodes, you know, podcast episodes ahead, and we were thinking about Father's Day coming up, and we were thinking about all the Spielberg movies we'd been watching, and fathers are... Uh, And fatherhood is a big theme throughout all of Spielberg's movies. And so we decided to move forward on our Spielberg movie adventure. And so then we picked, we decided to pick one Spielberg movie per decade and kind of talk about all the fathers in them. Spielberg has directed many, many films. And so you can't really cover them all. And many of them, if not most of them, center around father characters or have important father characters and Spielberg's pretty famous for that it's not anything new uh, people often call his people often look at his films and say that well Spielberg has daddy issues which makes you think that all of his fathers are horrible people but really and especially as we watched these five specifically we're thinking about how his fathers really run the gamut of good bad and everything in between and so we really wanted to cover the breadth of of all the fathers in Spielberg's movies. And it's more than just, um, I, I think just saying that his films have daddy issues is a bit reductive and there's a little bit more to it than that. And we're excited. Spielberg's possibly my favorite director and um, I'm kind of nervous actually to talk about him because uh, he's been talked about to death. So my breath still stink. No, I don't. <laughs> the way you looked at me, you're like. No, I was just, you, you claimed that Spielberg has been talked about to death, but... Again, you and I live in different worlds. I have never heard anybody talk about Spielberg except for you. <laughs> You've never heard the word Spielberg in conversation. No, I ever. have, but not to like 
any depth. It's like, oh, it's a Spielberg movie, and that'll be about the end of it. I haven't been in any deep conversations about Spielberg except for with you. Your so. world is incredibly depressing to me sometimes when I hear these <laughs> words coming out of your mouth. You, sir. It's just a magical world to talk about movies. I mean, I agree. I think it's that's why I'm doing this podcast with you. I'm just saying in day-to-day life, Spielberg discussions don't arise. Granted, my day-to-day life is generally at home with the children, so until they're old enough to watch Spielberg movies. And it'll be any day now. It'll happen. Our they already talk about Star Wars all the time. So, so our six-year-old, we seem to... What, what Spielberg movie would you start him on? Which one's six-year-old appropriate? Um, oh, man, that's hard. None of them. Especially since he's kind of easily scared. I know. Like, I've been watching Raiders of the Lost Ark for as long as I can remember. But It would um, terrify I'm him. I'm pretty sure we had, like, an edited VHS because I didn't see faces melting until I was older. And then I realized that faces <laughs> melt in that movie. So, yeah, if there's a way... Yeah, I don't know. E.T.'s a little creepy. Um, Like, physically, the creature is a little creepy. The right. movie itself is... A little creepy at the beginning, but... But even then, it gets a little scary, like, you know, when they're being chased down and stuff. I mean, the BFG is more kid-oriented, but... uh, Children are braver or have more gumption than we give them credit for. Movies are far less scary now than they were. I mean, that's a pretty... Yeah, look at Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We do not talk about the child snatcher, ever. (laughs) Please don't talk about the child snatcher. But yes, Spielberg... One movie every decade. We might bring some other movies into it a little bit, but... You might. These are like the only Spielberg movies I've ever seen. Other than Indiana Jones. Yeah. And you've got Henry Jones Sr. chasing some birds off the beach. You've lost me. (laughs) He's got the umbrella and he's running along the beach. The greatest scene in cinema history where he's making bird sounds as he opens and closes the umbrella and the birds fly up and the birds fly into the plane and make the Nazi airplane crash. Okay, now I've got it. Nazis. He's He's only in the third one. That's uh, right. Sean Connery. Junior. That's what you'd say if he was a Nazi. That's not Spielberg. Should be. It's good enough. Bed knobs and broomsticks. Yes, so as you said, Jaws and then E.T. So that's Jaws in 75, E.T. in 1982. Then we're going up to Jurassic Park. 1993. And then... That's uh, one that I remember having seen since I can remember. That's yeah. definitely my first and longest Spielberg love. And then we're going to get into some lesser talked about ones. I don't feel like people talk enough about Catch Me If You Can. So we want to talk about Catch Me If You Can. That's 2002. And then this current decade, we're going to talk about, I forgot the name, War Horse. <laughs> War Horse. <laughs> <laughs> War Horse. And there are lots of other movies, like I said, that deal with fatherhood. But we can't really cover all that in a one episode of a podcast. So... Yeah, jump right in. Just write your next thesis on that. On what? Fatherhoods in Spielberg. I'm sure it's been done to death, (laughs) as I said. All right, Jaws. Talk to me about Jaws and fatherhood, Valerie. I think the main father that we come across is the sheriff. What's his name, Casey? Chief Brody. Chief Brody. I've only seen the movie once. I didn't mean to sound like patronizing there. I meant to sound like excited because I like Chief Brody. I I got it. Okay. I'm with you. I didn't feel patronized. Oh, thank you. Speaking of which, hey, what's our words of the episode? Oh, oh, almost forgot. Mine also starts with a P. What does Mm. yours start with? An O. That's almost a P. Sure. It's right next to it. Yeah, but... Do you remember the song that... Remember that song? A, B, C... Yeah, but one is not the same, so almost is... If you would say they're neighbors, I'd say yes. If you would say it's almost a P, no, because they have very different sounds. Mm, But think about the shape. Yeah, but like... They are almost the same. There's just a little line. It if, says O, U, A. Next to the... Whereas you get P. On the left puh. side, there's this line All that it's got is comes a, down. P only has one sound. O has Look at us. Three. We're doing a Spielberg thing where we're talking <laughs> over each other. Spielberg does this thing where the characters talk over each other or there's a character in the background saying there's multiple conversations. And I love when he does that and not enough directors do that. I'd never thought about it that. It almost sounds like... We planned that, but we really didn't. Because I'm trying to tell you, there's a line next to the yes. O that comes <laughs> down, and I'm it's basically you. a P. It's flat. You can't have a flat side on an O, so they're not the same. And that depends on the thickness of the line. Okay. Anyways, what's your word? <laughs> Stop looking at me like that. What's your word? Ostentatious. Ooh. The definition of ostentatious is designed to impress or attract notice, or it could be a pretentious display. Speaking of pretentious, my word is portentous. Not the same thing. Mm. Portentous, not pretentious. Uh, portentous means like of 
portent, as in um, something big is going to happen or a calamity. So um, ominous is a synonym for portentous. Portentous. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Of great portent. <laughs> great portent. It just sounds funny. Like instead of it sounds like it you're does. missing up the word like important. It does, and it yeah. also sounds like I'm trying to say pretentious, but I'm messing up, mixing it up. But it is yeah. not pretentious. Okay. okay. Ostentatious. Portentious. For me. Portentious for you. All right. Chief Brody. Chief Brody. I love when you have these little jingles for things. <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone's ever made a jingle for Chief Brody, but they should because he's such he a... deserves one. Like, police, do police chiefs get voted or is that sheriffs? Like, if there's a campaign v- video and for Chief Brody, mm. there's got to be a jingle in there. Right. Chief Brody. <laughs> Vote Chief Brody. More than meets the eye. Oh, that's Transformers. <laughs> They're like the same syllables so chief brody (laughs) i was just counting i didn't make sure transformers chief brody yeah (laughs) i like to think of chief brody as a a double father he's both the father to his children he has what was it two sons i think two sons yeah 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 he doesn't also have a little girl no okay just the two boys yes Okay, and uh, so he's got his two sons, and then he's also a sheriff. I mean, it's his job to protect the town, so he's like the father of the town. And no one is listening to him. Everyone else Nobody's in that town listening sucks. To him. <laughs> Don't worry about the money, money, money. You know, They're you can't the... ruin their holiday season. All their tourists is where all their income comes from. I understand where they're coming from, but you know, safety is kind of a big deal. Not in the seventies. Yeah, no seatbelts. Free, yeah. freewheeling. Seat, when were seatbelts? Uh, I think. Post-Jaws, pre-Jaws. Well, I'm going to say post-Jaws because I remember stories of my oldest sister. She was born 74 or 75. And my parents were talking about how she would stand in the back of my dad's Thunderbird as like a two-year-old and just like hold on to both of the front seats as my dad would like spin donuts and things. And she would just stand up and have a blast. But y- y- they could have just been playing loose with the law. You know? No, they like weren't seatbelts. Okay. And like having a child, like you just have to hold the baby in your lap as you drove because there's no car seats. Totally weird. All right. Different era. Chief Brody. <laughs> totally lost my train of thought on Chief Brody. He is the father of the town. Yes. And I said that the town's people all suck. That's right. That's where we were. Mm-hmm. So how did we get on seatbelts? <laughs> Because I said safety is important and no one else in the town seems to care about safety except for Chief Brody. <laughs> and and then um, we're talking about like seatbelts because it's the 70s. And then I said that the <laughs> seatbelts weren't um, implemented yet legally. Right, and then, I got it. Um, in the 70s. And then you told us a story about your sister in the, uh-huh. in the Gremlin. Which car? Not a Gremlin. Thunderbird. Thunderbird. Same thing. No. A Gremlin. Who are you? <laughs> so... <laughs> Chief Brody is worried about the town and he knows that, you know, things are going wrong. There's shark attacks and people are like, oh, she, this girl that's dead on the beach was like caught in a boat, a boating accident, you know. Um, But he knows otherwise and he brings in the experts and he's trying to shut down the beaches and, and take care of everyone because he knows that something very portentous is happening in their town. And he, what? <laughs> no, you used it correctly. It's just so soon okay <laughs> i was fair. gonna say you're the way you're shaking your head at me i was like dang it i used the word wrong or i, I no, pronounced you, it wrong no sorry no <laughs> maybe shark, second guess myself i mean the shark is portentous he is i mean the music alone is portentous that's yeah you made it too easy for me friend so he's trying to protect everyone and the town is ignoring him what else do you have to say about Chief Brody? There's that scene where he has with his son, where the son's like copying his every move, and Chief Brody's just stressed about the whole situation. Yes. And it's not a scene I can really describe because it's just so visually perfect, and I love it. And um, yeah, that the for dad me is, like solidifies puts one hand on his face, yeah. and the little boy does it, and eventually the dad catches on, but he doesn't like get mad at him, even though he's like super stressed out. He's just like playing along still. I just love when films take a time, the time to breathe a little bit and just yeah. have a short little scene like it's that. It's not fast-paced yeah. the whole way through. It's not too much. It's not a super long scene, but it's important um, to establish him as a father. And you Chief, know what, oh, Go ahead. As I say, you know what else I like about 
Chief Brody as a father is he's terrified of the ocean and yet he's like being good dad like letting his sons like play in the beach I mean he's taking he's keeping track of them and everything and it's kind of stressing him out but he's trying to you know give them that that bit of freedom they can love the water just because he doesn't and the fact that he goes out onto a rickety boat to go and hunt down a giant shark when he's terrified of the water yeah that's true about the thing about letting him letting his kids play in the water and it's just a good lesson to learn. I I think that when you're afraid of something, it's easy to become a helicopter parent, even just about that one thing. So that's, yeah, Chief Brody's great. We could also say that the mayor of the town is kind of a father figure. And he's a terrible a one. one. Yeah. yeah. It's like completely his, like all these extra deaths are his fault for not wanting to shut down the beaches. That's true. Oh, I was going to say Chief Brody, he sort of starts the um, trend, maybe, the theme of of not necessarily absent fathers, but fathers who are very focused on their work more so than their kids. In this case, the kids are seem to be fine without it. In As Spielberg's um, movies go on and on, there's more sons that seem to be upset about the the workaholic dad that they have, so to speak. But I don't think that's his fault in this case because they moved from, was it Brooklyn or New York? Somewhere in New York. They like moved from, you know, a big city with lots of crime and stuff. And they're trying to move out to this quiet little town where he can be sheriff and they can just have, you know, lead a more peaceful life. And he should be able to be home more with his kids. Like that was part of the goal is to have a, you know, a simpler family life. And it just happens that this portentous shark attacks happen on his watch. Not really what he wanted. Yeah, I think it's a very real um, dilemma that all, all if not m- most parents deal with is just balance, balancing their vocations or avocations with time with their children. And so I think it's a very, Chief Brody's a very real character and I love him. Absolutely. And what he's doing, he's doing to benefit and keep his children safe. Right. He has to do what he's doing. It's right. not like he can back down. If yeah. he backs down, the ending would have been very different. All right. E.T., the extraterrestrial. This is reality, Greg. <laughs> That's the greatest line in cinema history. Mm. I know. All cinema. I thought you were going to go for Spielberg history, but previously we said, you know, this is the war room. You you can't fight in here. You can't fight in here. This is the war room. But I think this is reality. Greg is maybe it's a tie. I don't. <laughs> I can't remember what Greg is asking. Oh, why can't he just beam up? Oh, to, why can't he just beam up the to the spaceship or something like that? Yeah, this is reality, and Greg. Says, this is reality, Greg. So good. It's a great line, full of sass, that little Elliot. I don't know that there's too much to say in here about the the father in E.T. is an absentee father, like 100%. We never meet him. He's only spoken of. Spoken of um, negatively. Negatively, or like they're trying not to speak of him because it upsets the mom. So it sounds like he has gone off with, I don't know if it's a second wife or a girlfriend or whatever, um, but they're in Mexico, and the mom even says, he hates Mexico. It's like the only time she mentioned. Well, she does tell Elliot too. You know, you could call your father. Like she's trying to bridge that gap and and help her children still be, um, still keep their father in in her children's life. But we get the sense that it's all his fault. Whatever happened and why he's not there is his choice and his doing. Yeah. So um, a little bit of history. Steven Spielberg's parents divorced when he was nineteen. So he's much older than Elliot is in E.T. But he's said that E.T. really was about, um, the film really started as being about that divorce. It wasn't really about the alien at all to begin with. Just like on an emotional level, it was about that. And I think the film is about Elliot coming to terms with all these emotions that he's feeling and um, learning to let go. And in the in the movie, the, the, meta, the metaphor is letting go of the alien, but um, Elliot's learning to let go of, of his dad as well, I think. I like that. I hadn't thought about that. That's not really my idea i think et's right. probably when it comes to spielberg and fatherhood et's like a huge one that's talked about a lot and so none of this is original casey or anything but um we could also talk about how elliot i mean maybe in place of not having his own father around is definitely trying to be a father to et like he's trying to care for him and he's saying you know i can i can take care of him i can keep him healthy even when he's getting sick and he's trying to trying to control the situation um which I think as parents, we often try to control the situation with our children, but there's things that we are not in control of. And so Elliot gets a little taste of that. And, and yeah, he would do anything for E.T. He flies on a bicycle for E.T. 
also because it just looks awesome. I know we watched E.T. before we had this idea of fathers in mind, so I... We weren't really taking notes, like... Yes. Uh, the next three movies, I've got a lot of notes Yeah, we, on. T- we took notes, <laughs> but we had watched the other two. We thought maybe we'd talk about Spielberg, and then, and which was your idea, and then I was like, well, let's just make it a Father's Day thing, so... Um, all right, let's jump up into the 90s, Jurassic Park. Do, 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 do. Keep going. <laughs> I expected you to chime in with me, you know, make a duet. So, Jurassic Park. I'm going to say my favorite Spielberg movie. Mine too. Mm. Yeah. MTB. I mean, we did see on the big screen, like we talked about in our previous episode. Oh, yeah. It's just so good. It's got everything that you want from a Spielberg movie. It's got heart and emotion, but it's got... Suspense. Spielberg yeah, is really suspense. just so good at suspense, and which is something I can do. Which is like when we watched Jaws, I'd always thought it'd be super scary to me, and mm. I I don't like scary movies. But when it's more suspense than like gruesome, or well, Jaws is a little gruesome. It, it can get yeah. Um, but like or like yeah, not too not too scary. So Jurassic Park, it's got the like you said the emotion, it's got the action, it's got fantastic characters, good storyline. It's got dinosaurs. And it's got Goldblum. It's got Goldblum. Plus Goldblum's chest. So <laughs> Which is its own it's character. It's got Samuel L. Jackson. I always forget that. Hold on to your butts. Every every time we watch it. I'm like, oh yeah, there's <laughs> There's Fury. There's Fury. <laughs> Before we talk about Alan Grant, let's talk about Hammond, who is sort of the opposite of Chief Brody. Like Chief Brody, he is the father of this park, but Right. Safety is not his concern. He's more like the mayor in that sense. Um, he's more worried about the bottom line and not even just the money, but just he's trying to, um, like Dr. Sattler said, he's trying to control the situation when he really doesn't have any control. Just like but, parenting. Yeah. <laughs> Hammond's funny. He's like that dad that um, introduces you to his kids and then the kids are terrible little humans and then he's upset like why don't you love these children as much as i do <laughs> right these spoiled children when the children are, like, eating kids are other perfect. children it's obviously <laughs> now you're getting dark <laughs> but <laughs> I no lost he, the metaphor a little bit i'm sorry he really is the father of uh, not just the park but each dinosaur like he is there he insists on being there at the birth of every dinosaur because they will, he says, you know, bond to those who they first come in contact with. And especially since, at least at first, all the dinosaurs are female. So he's really the only father. Like, there are no male dinosaurs. And speaking of, since we were talking about children, I want to bring this up. As we were watching Jurassic Park this last time, there are a few quotes about the dinosaurs that I feel like also apply to children. Okay. Ready? Hit me. Okay. They're lethal at eight months. And I do mean lethal. Yeah. Yeah. Accurate. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's talking about the Dilophosaurus and it says making them a beautiful but deadly addition mm-hmm. and they say to our park but you could say you know to our home yep yeah. yeah. and the park I mean you yeah. can take kids to a park mm-hmm. so, yeah. um, also with the Dilophosaurus you know it looks super sweet until it turns on you so that's like a child too our children don't have the skin flaps nor do they sp- <laughs> like they don't spit venom Spit venom, but we but. have been spat on, kicked, you know, fits thrown. They definitely scream like that sometimes. <laughs> I think the the three year old and the Dilophosaurus are are all but identical. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Minus the skin flaps and the poison in the spit, the three year old are the same. Right. Yeah. So yeah, basically dinosaurs, kids, they're synonymous. Yeah. So Hammond yeah. is really a father to these dinosaur children. Now divorce does come into play again. Uh, in in this movie, the, it's kind of a blink and you miss it moment, right? But one liner. Uh, they they mention that the kids' parents have gone through a divorce, and it's just kind of there. It's like a little a little jab. You can tell that divorce is something that has meaning for Spielberg, and 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 fatherhood clearly has meaning for Spielberg, uh, especially as you look at Alan Grant. Grant, he's a fantastic character. But we start off at the very beginning of the movie. We meet Grant, and he's so annoyed with this little boy at his dig site. Like, he just can't, (laughs) he can't get over the fact that, you know, how obnoxious this kid is. Um, So when they leave the dig site, I love when um, he asks Ellie, you know, he's like, you want to have one of those? Like, you want to have a kid? She says, not that one, but some breed of human child could be intriguing. But as a scientist, like, she's trying to almost appeal to, like, his scientific nature. Like, you mm. can, you know, a, a child could be intriguing. Think of the the study. Right. And the... Approach it with curiosity, and it's fun. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but he's just 
not into it. So he starts off, you know, not wanting or liking kids, but he runs into Lex and Timmy. Uh, and so he runs into Lex and Timmy and he is immediately like uncomfortable around them, just like the other little boy at the beginning. And I love that Ellie can like see how uncomfortable he is. But she's like telling Lex to go to whichever she car he's on. in. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie is the best to watch in all those scenes. Right. Because like, she's just she, laughing at Grant. She's like in the background, but she's laughing and, and giggling and she's the best to watch. What I like though is it's not that Grant is unkind around the children. He's just kind of annoyed slash doesn't know what to do with them. Like he, I mean, when um, they go out to see the Triceratops and Lex kind of falls, he like helps her up and asks are you okay but then she goes to like hold his hand and he's trying to like shake her off <laughs> right yeah he's yeah he's more annoyed than mean so i guess you could consider him more aloof my favorite thing this time and i'd never noticed this before the, you know there's the scene where the cow gets eaten by Velo- the velociraptors and um grant does seem to find that intriguing there's not necessarily terror yet at least on the surface but then um, a couple scenes later when the kids arrive and there's just this look of terror on Grant's face when he realizes that like <laughs> they're going to be going on this tour with children. I just oh, love that, that he has more he's more terrified by the children <laughs> than the than the velociraptors that eat cows. With good reason. Yeah. Like we said, children. Right, They're lethal at eight months. Eight months. <laughs> um, yeah. So kind of like how E.T. is sort of about uh, a boy and an alien, but it's also about a boy letting go. This film is on the surface about dinosaurs, but it's really about a man, at least in one part, it's really about a man learning to become a father figure and accepting that role and realizing that it is it is a part of him and that uh, he can be a father figure and that he's good at it too. Yeah, he really does pick it up. Like he, like it comes naturally to him to want to save the children as soon as the uh, the T-Rex is loose, and uh, the uh, blood-sucking lawyer, I can't remember his name. No, I don't remember his first name. Gennaro. Gennaro is yeah. his last name. He's in the car with the kids, and he, like, books it out of the car, runs away, and leaves the kids all alone, which is interesting, because you'll note, he has a wedding ring on, and he's an older guy. Odds are, he has kids of his own, but that doesn't lead him to be, like, you know, paternal towards other children. Like he's still willing to abandon them to a T-Rex and save himself. Whereas Grant is ready to jump out of the car, light the flare and try and, you know, draw the T-Rex off. What point do you think Grant accepts his role as a father figure though? Because I think a little bit before that, there's that moment where um, Grant's up at the other car and goes back to the car with, with Goldblum and you can tell that something bad's going to be happening soon. And Malcolm asks, how are the kids? And Grant's like, I didn't ask. Like, why right. would I ask how the kids are? It's not exactly. a, a big deal. So I, I don't think he's accepted it yet at that point. No, no, no. I think it comes to him more naturally to rescue them just because they're in danger and he's a mm-hmm. decent human being more than that he feels anything, you know, fatherly toward them. He's like, okay, I think I know how to solve this problem and I'm going to solve it. But he goes on to spend more time with the children. One of my favorite moments is when he and Timmy, they you know, they have to climb out of the tree because the car is falling and they... They get out of the tree, but the car falls on top of them. And Grant, you know, he tells his first dad joke. And Timmy says, well, we're back in the car. And Grant says, but at least you're out of the tree. Maybe that's the moment he becomes a mm. father. When you when tell you your first tell your first dad, dad joke. joke. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got dad joke number two when you're at the electric fence. And he grabs the wire and pretends to be shocked. <laughs> it's a total dad move. It totally is. <laughs> I've done things like that. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, he's also a father figure in the sense that he's trying to not only protect the children, but also to teach them. Like he's uh, quizzing Timmy, you know, what kind of dinosaur is that? And, you know, he says a Brachiosaurus. And then he's trying to talk Lex into not being afraid of the Brachiosaurus, saying that it doesn't eat meat. And, and he's trying to teach him how to make a dinosaur call. It's another very dad move, except, you know, it'd probably be like a bird call or something. But I don't know, Casey, you know any dinosaur calls to teach our children? Make I a Dilophosaurus used, I used to noise. actually be able to do a good Dilophosaurus, but I don't know. Is it a Dilophosaurus? No, Diloph, P-H. Dilophosaurus. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I keep putting a P in there. Dilophosaurus. You, you won't be able to tell on the on the Dilophosaurus. Yeah. No, I used to be able to do a Dilophosaurus, but I can't do it anymore. I don't. I didn't practice, and so I lost it. But 
You know, it's probably my favorite Grant father moment, though. What? Dr. Grant is, uh, he's out with the children and they come across the dinosaur eggs that have been hatching. And he basically has to give the kids like a sex talk. Mm. He's like, so, because they're like, I thought all the female, all the dinosaurs were female. And he's like, so the DNA and some can, you know, switch gender from male to female. And like, <laughs> total dad moment. One more Grant moment that I think is emblematic of the the dual meaning of what's happening in the movie, but also about fatherhood um, as sort of an undercurrent. There's that moment where Lex keeps saying, uh, he left us, he left us. And Grant says, that's not what I'm going to do. And obviously they're talking, she's talking about the lawyer. But I think on some level it can also be... Her parents um, just got divorced. Yeah, and, and her feeling like her dad has left her. And when that happens, kids naturally look for a father figure of some kind. And they've right. clearly latched onto Grant. But I think there's some double meaning there. And, and maybe even triple meaning if you look at Spielberg and um, and his relationship and feelings toward his father. I like that. What about Malcolm? you have anything to say on Malcolm? Well, there's that moment where Grant asks Malcolm if he has kids. And I guess it's a little bit more about Grant. But you almost get the feeling like Grant's trying to figure out why anyone would would have have kids at that Mm -hmm. point it's funny because that's the part i wanted to bring up too because malcolm says you know oh yeah i love kids and he says he has three kids and he says anything that can and will happen and after hearing that line this time i made the realization that malcolm became a chaotician because he first became a parent i believe it yeah Yeah. obviously chaos kids are chaos and so then you become with or without skin flaps (laughs) kids are chaos Okay, we better move on to let's zoom right past Y2K. We're all fine. Year 2000, we're good. Let's go to 2002. We made it. Catch me if you can. For some reason, people forget it's a Spielberg movie. I always do. Because it's a great one. I think it's underrated. I mentioned uh, a little bit about Spielberg's background. Um, I'm going to bring in a little bit more. As I said, his parents divorced, and for years, um, Stephen just blamed his dad. He thought it was his dad's fault. His parents didn't deny that it was his dad's fault that the the dad left and Stephen was with his mom um, and he sort of put his mom on a pedestal. It wasn't until later that he learned that um, his mom was in love with his dad's friend and that the divorce was his mom's idea and not his dad's. And his dad still loved his mom and wanted to stay with her. And so Stephen learned that he was wrong to blame his dad. And uh, I think you start to, and also Stephen, once he learned that, started to have a real relationship with his dad. He'd had been sort of estranged from his dad for a long time, placing blame on him. And you can see that in some of the father figures in his films. But the fathers start to change a little bit. And I think that Catch Me If You Can is a good example of that. Uh, the mom at the beginning is is sort of put on a pedestal by Frank Jr. and Frank Sr. And um, Frank Sr. is painted much more sympathetically and that he he seems to be more of a victim, um, someone to empathize with and sympathize with. Yeah, speaking of divorces between parents, that's a really traumatic moment um, for Frank Jr. when he comes home and everybody's sitting in the room and he's just told all of a sudden that he needs to write down a name, pick, a mom, pick mom or dad to live with. And he's so traumatized in that moment that he just literally runs away and doesn't come back. Not just for a short time, but like completely runs away from this issue. I love that because we've talked about suspense, but in the sense of like a a giant man-eating shark or a T-Rex or a velociraptor. But here it's the suspense is just which name is he going to pick and why does he have to make this decision and it's not fair and his life is falling apart. Like there's still suspense in that scene, but it's not on um, a big grand scale. It's... It's just a, um, an emotional decision. Yeah, when it comes down to it, a lot of Frank Jr.'s motive throughout the whole movie is he's trying to, you know, pull enough cons, make enough money to put his family back the way it was. Like he thinks that by getting all the things or all the dominoes, you know, laid in place, that everything will work out the way it should. Um, he keeps trying to tell, you know, give his dad a car or tell his dad to talk to his mom or, and I think. Part of that, his father really doesn't want to crush his dream of having a family back together again. So it takes him a long time before he tells Frank that his mother remarried. And I think that's his father trying to protect him. Yeah, which again, back to Spielberg, that his Spielberg's real dad didn't ever say that, you know, the, the truth was never told to Stephen. He was just led to believe what he wanted to believe. And um, Stephen's dad just wanted to protect his son. I think it's very similar. Hopefully, unlike Stephen's personal father... Um, Frank Sr. is a little bit on the, uh, 
I call it dodgy side of some things. Like he, <laughs> he's devious. He lies. Yeah. It's, he's he tries to charm people to get what he wants, and he um he's in trouble with the IRS for like tax evasion. So he's definitely been um hasn't been a, a forthright person. Yeah, he's unwittingly trained um, Frank Jr. to become a con man. Frank Sr.'s cons are like on a very small scale for the most part. It seems um, right. just little things here and there. And Frank Jr. Just being a kid, he's just a teenager stuck in this poor situation of divorce, and he just takes that con to the extreme level as a teenager, as teenagers tend to do. Right. I love when, and his dad totally encourages him. Like when he gets in trouble for um, being the <laughs> pretending to be the French teacher substitute for like a week or something, <laughs> um, and his mom, you can tell, is disappointed in him. But his father is like a sly, like, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's pretty funny. Like, way to go kind of a, um interaction with him. Like, you can tell that, you know, his dad's like pleased by that. Like, he thinks it's funny. Um, so he definitely gets encouraged by his father, but not in the most positive ways. Yeah. It, Frank Sr. is really interesting because in some ways he doesn't encourage it. Maybe if, it's, if it affects him. Like, when Frank Jr. is offering him all the 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 money he says i've got some money i've got a car he's offering them these ostentatious things and frank senior just says no because i'll get in trouble but then at the same time later in the film when frank jr wants to stop he wants to be done he wants to just live a normal life frank senior's like the stage dad he's like no you can't stop you're you're sticking it to the man so to speak right yeah and he's you know telling him that he uh you know they'll never catch him like he's really putting his son up on this uh, pedestal and, and picturing his son is better than he is and uh, definitely living through his son's life. Yeah, there's a, vi- a sense of vi- vicariousness, vicarity, vicariousness, mm-hmm. whatever the word in that form is, um, that he wants him to, yeah, to to stick it to the government because Frank Sr. hasn't been able to do that. Okay, we need to mention the other dad in the movie. Brenda's dad? No. Oh. He is in the movie, but... Carl. Carl Hanratty. Yeah, Carl Hanratty. Tom Hanks. Oh, Tom Hanks. What a man. What a role. I really like him in this role, and we don't talk about it. Again, we don't talk about it enough. So when we see that Frank Sr. is kind of urging his son to move forward this life of crime, to live this dream, so to speak, um, Carl Hanratty is trying to bring him back down. And at first it starts out more of like a, I don't know what you'd call it, like a just get the guy and be done kind of a thing. And then it becomes kind of a personal vendetta, like he feels like he has to. But then he realizes that Frank's just a kid. He's like 17, 18, 19 throughout this period. And I think with the own shortcomings as a father, like he lost his chance to really be in his daughter's life. Um, He's seeing that he, like the potential in Frank and he wants to try and help him out. Um, so he really, you know, he rescues him from the French prison. He gets him a job with the, uh, who does he work for? Is it the F- No, not the FBI. Who does he work for? Yeah, it's the FBI. Okay, it Isn't is it? the FBI. No, I'm questioning it, but. I don't remember. I believe so. Okay, yeah. So he gets him a job working in the same office. And he really comes to, like, show Frank the support and the trust that he needs to be able to turn his life around. Yeah, much like the kids in Jurassic Park latch onto Grant as a father figure, um, Frank Jr. latches on to Carl as a father figure. Before we even learn that Carl is a father in in his real personal life, he's a father and um, a divorced one again. Yeah, and I love that he, like, Frank Jr. feels like he can't, he doesn't contact his mother throughout all this time. And his father, he is sporadically in contact with, or he tells him these big stories. That's his kind of contact, you know. Um, but with Frank, or with uh, Carl, because Carl knows all the terrible things he's done, um, with Carl, he's more honest. And so, like, that's his, when he's feeling especially lonely on Christmas Day, that's when he calls Carl, and he's trying to, you know, kind of make peace or make sense of his life, and he reaches out to Carl. All right, Warhorse. What's the year, Casey? 2012, War Horse. We've only seen it once, right? Right, and I had remembered liking it, but I never really felt the need to go back and watch it again. Yeah, it's it's a likable movie, just maybe a little bit forgettable, I guess, Um, especially when you put it up next to the likes of Jaws on E.T. and Jurassic Park, but uh, it's still a good film, full of father figures. I mean, it's really a movie about fathers and fatherhood throughout, a lot more than I remembered or realized. Right, um, watching it through a second time, especially when we were looking for those, yeah. that theme. I mean, just you look at the horse, Joey, and how many father figures Joey has. All these male figures that um, are taking care of it throughout. One female, the the little girl, 
um, Emily, but she also has a grandfather and the grandfather plays a big part in being another father figure for the horse. But uh, there's lots and talk about a few of them, but um, maybe we should start with Albert Albi. Yeah, so we start out the movie with the birth of Joey the horse. Uh, Not that he's named such yet, but um, so we see Albert is there with Joey from the very beginning, and he really admires this beautiful horse, Um, and he even tries tries to feed him an apple, tries to bond with him, and so he really becomes this father figure to Joey from the very beginning. He takes to him, Um, but we've also got uh, Joey's father, Ted, who is kind of a disappointment to Joey. He's... To Joey? Or, sorry... Who's kind of a disappointment to Albert. He um, sees his father as a bit of a good for nothing. He drinks a lot. He um, And the movie paints him as such. Everyone right. seems to... Oh, everyone picks on him. Yeah. Um, and he's got, you know, a hurt leg from the war. And so he's not as efficient as he could be on the farm. And he has a lot of struggles that make it hard for um, Albie to look up to his dad. Yeah, and um, again, it's a, this is another father who starts the film in a, in a negative light and either goes through some sort of arc or in this case, I mean, I, I think Ted does go through an arc, but also Albie's viewing of his father goes through an arc in that he, he realizes that his dad, he learns that his dad was in the war, that his dad has a lot of awesome, great qualities as a father. And it goes back to that, that history of Spielberg's own life of realizing that, um, that he was... He had, paint, he had painted his dad in a bad light, a poorer light than he should have. And I mean, without his father, without Ted buying the horse, Albert would have never had the horse. And I love that line that uh, Ted uses it, and then later Joey, or sorry, later Albie uses it when he's trying to plant the, or ha- pl- trying to plow the, you know, the lower field with Joey. And um, he says that, but the dad uses it first when he's buying Joey, and he says, there are big days and small days. Like, there's an idea that you have to... There are days that are important and that you have to really stand up for yourself and for what needs to be done. And he passes on that that pride and that a little bit of foolhardiness to his son, Albie. Uh, they're a lot alike in a lot of ways. Ted's also another dad that um, maybe to the emotional detriment of his of his children, of his child, uh, does what he has to, do, has to do, so to speak. In this case, uh, he feels like he has to sell the horse and he doesn't feel like he has any choice. And I don't know that he's wrong to do so necessarily either. But yeah, I think that's a running theme for a lot of the fathers is they, they do what they have to do. What's interesting about that is I do agree that, you know, Ted is doing what he has to do for his family to provide for them, to care for them. And he knows that in the long run, um, Albie needs a roof over his head more than he needs the horse. But he does it behind... Albie's back like he can't face his own son Mm -hmm. in this uh, decision he has to make but yes then Tom Hiddleston Captain Michaels was it I don't remember he's not Captain Nichols I have it written down he's not there for very long but um, why isn't he there for very long Casey because he joins the circus yes that's it yep joins the circus no not not that there's a war going on um yeah so Joey goes through a number of fathers we just briefly mention all the fathers the the various so got male Captain figures Nichols, that take care of him mm-hmm. and then we have gunter yep the german medical soldier that who is also a protector to his brother michael true and can we talk about how michael is only 14 and apparently his father signed off for him to go to war yeah possibly the worst probably, possibly the worst dad in spielberg in spielberg's movies especially among the off-screen dads that's that's as low as it gets right so. send your 14 year old off to war and uh, lie to send your 14 year old off to war he would have been safe because he's only 14 um so yeah we have gunter and then and then we have the grandfather to emily yep the grandfather and then we have the reluctant horse master soldier the german yes um that's and he's trying to protect the horse i know i love that line he where can. he says man it's a pity that they found you like yeah. he's so sad that he these... like hates his loves horses but hates his job because uh-huh. yeah. they're just ruining them by carrying this all uh, you know they have to pull the all artillery up yeah. the hills and then uh we have the american soldier the i don't know his name the one played by toby kebble who all the soldiers on both sides see that Joey's trapped in the barbed wire, and he's the one that risks his life. He's not American. That was British. Me sorry, off. British. Okay, that threw um, me off for a second. Uh, he's British, and he he um, he's the one that 
risk his life to go. Right. He's the, waving the right white flag, trying to walk out and save the horse from the barbed wire in the in no man's land. And then I guess in that same sense, the other German that comes, Peter. That's um, my favorite he's a bit scene. Of a father. I love that scene so much. So good. And their chemistry, those two soldiers kind of working together, showing that on any other day in any other town they could get along just fine and yet they're stuck on opposite li- sides of the yep. sides of the war. It's pretty sentimental and Spielberg's been accused of being sentimental, but at this point, you know you're gonna get some sentiment in a Spielberg movie and I love it. So There's nothing wrong with sentiment. And then from there he makes his way. Back, back to, to his, Albie. His, uh, his first human father, so to speak, to yeah. Albie. And Albie makes such a good dad to his horse. Like he, He's blind at this point because of the mustard gas, and he like still knows. He's telling him. He calls to the horse, and he's like, I know it's my horse. And they're like, it can't be your horse. It's just a horse. And he's like, look at the markings. You know, He knows that this is his horse. You know, four white socks and kind of a diamond shape on his forehead. Like He, he knows his horse. He's a good dad to him. And even when it comes to the point when, you know, in, in doing what's best for someone else, like he's uh, willing to send the horse along with Emily's grandfather if if that's what needs to be done, um, even though it, you know, breaks his heart a bit. Also, this line from Albie that I think, you know, since I brought up that children are a lot like dinosaurs, <laughs> I should give them some redeeming. I should redeem them a little bit. Children are wonderful. And I love this line that Albie says to Joey, and I feel like it applies as a parent too, to your children. He says that we're the lucky ones. Lucky since the day I met you. Oh, that's cute. Right? Sentiment beautiful total sentiment <laughs> but that feels like a, a summation of parenting along with dinosaur children it's a bit of both <laughs> give or take the day hour some days minute, they're minute wonderful horses some yes. days they are dilophosauruses exactly well on that note thank you for joining us in this episode let us know if there's uh, a spielberg father that uh, we really missed an opportunity to talk about henry jones henry jones um henry jones senior uh we've got the dad in war of the worlds tom cruise well henry jones becomes a father too if you're that's true going later movies there's multiple generations there that's true um i forgot about that so either yeah either of the joneses we've got the dad from war of the worlds tom cruise um just trying to protect his kids and that movie's all about um him sort of and his son reconciling and coming together and also involves divorce we've got um minority report also tom cruise oh close encounters I don't think he's a good dad. The last time I watched that, he just kind of wants to run away and go into space. I guess that makes sense, though, considering Spielberg's history. Um, it's not really supposed to be a positive father figure. Although in that sense, it's more the... I feel like there was a lot of alien influence kind of pulling him to them and to space. Maybe. He's kind of obsessed, and he's not the only one. There are other people who have no. kind of been similarly affected. He definitely is another obsessive father Yes. of, of Spielberg's. Um, but there's lots. I mean, he's he's made many, many movies. And as we've said, many of them have fathers. So And happy Father's Day to all of you. Yeah, happy Father's Day to all the fathers and, and happy beeps. Happy beeps. Chief Brody. Chief Brody. This is reality, Greg. <laughs>